National Trust magazine, Autumn 2019. Hello and welcome to the Autumn issue of National Trust magazine. I'm Alan Power, Head Gardener at Starhead in Wiltshire. I also present some of the National Trust podcasts. Today I'll be taking you through some of the highlights of the Autumn magazine, including news, features and letters from Trust members. I'll also be chatting to some of the Trust staff, writers and experts who contributed to this issue. First up, we have Sally Palmer, editor of National Trust magazine, with her autumn letter. Thanks, Alan, and welcome to this audio edition of the autumn 2019 issue of National Trust magazine. My children have a favourite climbing tree in Lee Woods near Bristol. It's always full of children. Even little ones can clamber up the sloping trunk, feeling the bark under their fingers as they carefully make their way along a low, overhanging bough and then slide delightedly off the end into the arms of their waiting adult. I often see them pause to notice the rustling leaves or listen to the birds living in the branches higher up. This issue is a celebration of trees, the benefits they bring and the care that goes into looking after them. The cover story is by Head of Trees and Woodlands Ray Hawes, who draws upon his decades spent working with trees, and we have an interview with him coming up. The Trust is fundraising for our woodlands this autumn. For more information and to donate £5 for a tree, do visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash woodlands dash appeal. Thanks, Sally. That was National Trust magazine editor Sally Palmer with her autumn letter. And now for the news roundup. Here's Olivia Vinall and Glenn McCready to tell you about what's been going on around the Trust. A picture perfect view. The Trust has acquired Lake District beauty spot Brackenthwaite House to look after for the nation to enjoy. The small hill overlooking Crummock Water in Cumbria was a popular viewpoint for Georgian and Victorian tourists who would pause there to admire the 360 degree views of the northwestern lakes. J.M.W. Turner captured the view in his 1797 watercolour, Crummock Water, looking towards Buttermere. Laycock stars in Downton. Laycock Village in Wiltshire appears on the big screen this autumn as it stars as Downton Village in Downton Abbey. Laycock's picturesque streets and historic cottages were dressed with bunting and crowds to celebrate King George and Queen Mary's visit to Downton. Downton Abbey will be in cinemas from the 13th of September. The time is now. On the 26th of June, 50 trust rangers and staff joined The Time Is Now, one of the largest lobbies of Parliament for climate and the environment the UK has ever seen. Our staff spoke directly to MPs about the impacts of climate change they're seeing at our places, what we are doing to address these challenges, and why we need the support of a strong environment bill to restore nature. Visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash r hyphen views. Help for Marsden Moor. After a fire in April devastated 1,000 hectares of Marsden Moor in West Yorkshire, trust rangers, volunteers and partners are taking the first steps to help the moorland and its wildlife recover. They estimate £500,000 is needed, and thanks to kind gifts, more than £85,000 has already been raised. If you'd like to donate, 
please visit nationaltrust.org.uk and search the Marsden Moor Appeal. Nature News A common crane chick has hatched at Wickham Fen in Cambridgeshire for the first time since the Trust acquired the Nature Reserve in 1899. Rangers believe it to be the first such chick born there in over 500 years. Rare pine martins have been tempted back to Snowdonia's Dolmachlin Forest after a century-long absence by a dab of jam and eggs. The Vincent Wildlife Trust and Trust Rangers caught the martins tucking in on camera. And those were some highlights from the news section. Now, did you know that just two hours a week spent in green spaces has been shown to improve health and well-being? This special report looks at the future of urban parks and green spaces. It's read by Olivia Vinall. One of the original purposes of the Trust was to champion access to natural beauty and green spaces for urban communities. Our co-founder, Octavia Hill, believed green spaces were essential for enjoyment, refreshment and rest. Today, millions of people go to public parks each day to relax, play and connect with the natural world. Just two hours a week spent in green spaces has been proven to benefit health and well-being for all groups and ages. With 83% of the UK population now living in towns and cities, the Trust is concerned about the future of public parks and is working to secure their future. Most public parks and green spaces are owned and managed by local councils, and a decade of austerity has cut the maintenance budgets of many parks to the bone risking a terminal decline in the quality and accessibility of parks. This could have profound consequences for communities. For the last five years, the Trust has worked with local authorities to understand the challenges, the opportunities and the role we could play in developing solutions for public parks. To prove how valuable parks are to society, in 2017 we co-funded a study which showed that every one pound invested in London's green spaces generated 27 pounds of benefits for people. Recently, we supported Newcastle City Council's trailblazing work to set up a Parks and Allotments Trust to look after the city's green spaces. The challenges are too great for a single organisation to tackle, and the whole park system needs changing rather than individual parks being saved one by one. This led to us launching the Future Parks Programme in June. The Future Parks Programme is a joint venture between the Trust and the National Lottery Heritage Fund, supported by government, to find sustainable ways to fund and manage parks and green spaces. Earlier this year, we ran a competition to select eight urban places to pioneer this. The winners are Birmingham, Bournemouth Christchurch and Poole, Bristol, Cambridgeshire, Camden and Islington in London, Edinburgh, Nottingham and Plymouth. Together, they have a population of 5 million and 20,000 hectares of public green space ranging from parks and playing fields to nature reserves. We chose these places for their ambitious and creative plans to put green spaces at the heart of local communities. They all aim to give the public a bigger role in how parks are managed to contribute more to people's health 
and to transform the way parks are funded to secure their future. The Future Parks Initiative combines the resources, expertise and leadership of the Trust, Heritage Fund and Government and is being delivered by a joint team. The fund has contributed £5 million and government a further £1.2 million. The Trust is providing £5 million worth of advice and support from our experts in volunteering, fundraising, green space management and enterprise. We hope that the achievements and experience of these eight places over the next two years will inspire and help guide other councils and communities to secure the long-term future of parks for everyone. And for more information on the Future Parks programme, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk and search The Future of Parks. Our next feature is from the Director-General, Hilary McGrady. When I was a girl, I spent my summers roaming the fields with my dog, searching for the bird's nests and the frog spawn that delighted me so much. My early years were shaped by being the wee late one in our family, so by the time I was old enough to be out on my own, my older siblings had moved on to more exciting pastures. I was left to entertain myself in the great outdoors and they became my refuge from the world. Once that connection to nature takes root, I don't think it ever leaves us. Whether it's on our own doorstep or visiting somewhere further afield, it has never been more important to give our children the same opportunities my generation had. This autumn, we're focusing on some of the most important places in our care, our woodlands. The Trust's co-founder, Octavia Hill, said that every tree has its own individual story. At Croft Castle in Herefordshire, our Spanish chestnut trees are believed to have grown from the nuts salvaged from Spanish Armada boats more than 400 years ago. Meanwhile, the famous Anchorwick Yew, near Runnymede in Surrey, is said to be more than 2,000 years old. The oldest in trust care, and even possibly where Henry VIII courted Anne Boleyn. Each one of the millions of trees we look after across England, Wales and Northern Ireland is amazing. Not just for the stories they hold, but also for the important part they play in tackling climate change. 100 years ago, Parliament passed the Forestry Act, creating the Forestry Commission to increase woodland cover. The government's 25-year environment plan commits to increasing tree cover in England from 10% to 12% by 2060. This means planting more than 180,000 hectares of woodland. The Trust is determined to play our part, and with your help, we're raising funds to increase our woodlands. A donation of just £5 will enable us to plant one tree. Planting more trees is one of the simplest tools in our arsenal and it's a win-win for both people and nature. It's something we can all get involved in for the benefit of future generations. Let's make sure that they too can experience the wonder of roaming through woodlands on their doorstep. Thank you, Hilary. That was Hilary McGrady, the Trust's Director-General. And if you'd like to donate to the Trust's Woodland Appeal, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash woodlands dash appeal. Now for our cover feature, Woodlands. Coming up, I'll be talking to Ray Halls, the Trust's Head of Trees and Woodlands. First, we start with Olivia Vinall and Glenn McCready describing some of the living habitats and histories that make up this landscape, from ancient woodland to formal parkland. 
Restoring Ancient Woods Together Wander downstream from Fingal Bridge on the southern side of the River Teen, and you'll find Fingal Woods, a 333-hectare ancient woodland site on the fringes of Dartmoor National Park in Devon. In 2013, the National Trust and Woodland Trust bought it using donations, legacies and a grant from the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Together, we're restoring it for the benefit of wildlife and public access, in the first venture of its kind between our two organisations. Fingal Woods was originally part of a wider estate on the Teen Gorge that has been in recorded existence since the Doomsday Book. Over the years, its timber has been used by owners and tenants for building, fuel, sledges and farm implements. There was particular demand during the Second World War for charcoal, which was made from its coppice shoots and used for cordite. People came to fish, hunt, and enjoyed day trips from the 19th century, and during the 20th century, private owners cleared parts of the ancient woodland for more commercially viable conifer plantations. The woodland is already open to visitors, but about four-fifths is currently made up of conifers. We are working to restore the ancient woodland for wildlife and public access, replacing most of the conifers with natural broadleaf woodland. Ancient, veteran, notable. Discovering a truly old tree is a wonderful experience. What have they seen over the course of lives spanning hundreds or even thousands of years? Ancient trees are the oldest of all. They often have small canopies and extremely wide trunks. As their crowns grow downwards, their root systems and branches die back and their trunks hollow out. Their decaying wood makes them a vitally important habitat for rare animals and fungi. The most ancient tree in trust care is the Ankowick yew near Runnymede, on the border of Berkshire and Surrey. It is thought to be over 2,000 years old and was possibly where Magna Carta was sealed in 1215. Veteran trees share some of the characteristics of their ancient cousins, but in their case, the changes are because they're survivors of their environment rather than being purely caused by age. They might have been damaged or stressed by drought or lightning strikes. Their life experience can cause part of their crown to die back, but other areas remain healthy and lush, and the damage can result in important wildlife habitats. As they age, veteran trees become more valuable and hopefully will eventually achieve ancient status. Newton's apple tree at Woolsthorpe Manor in Lincolnshire is a veteran of particular significance since it's the very tree from which the apple fell that caused Newton to ponder the laws of gravity. Notable trees can be relatively young, their lifespans measured in decades rather than centuries, but they stand as superb specimens when compared to those around them. They generally lack the characteristics of ancient or veteran trees one of our notable trees is the original Irish yew at Florence Court in County Fermanagh. It is unique because all the Irish yews across the world are either directly or indirectly descended from this single tree and are genetically identical. Lines of Limes At its most basic, an avenue is two parallel rows of equally spaced trees, usually of the same species, to create a uniform feature. 
Often, avenues line a drive leading to a historic building or monument. The Trust has over 180 designed parks, most of which have at least one formal tree avenue and some have many more. Tree avenues have long been a popular feature of the British rural and urban landscapes. The planting style is of continental origin and became fashionable here during the 17th century. One of the most spectacular avenues in Trust Care is the two-mile double row of limes at Clumber Park in Nottinghamshire. Clumber Park was home to the Dukes of Newcastle for over 300 years. It was once part of Sherwood Forest, of Robin Hood fame, until the estate was enclosed as a hunting park for Queen Anne in 1707. Its magnificent avenue consists of 1,296 trees. It's the longest such avenue in Europe and was planted in 1840 by the fourth Duke of Newcastle. Many of the trust avenues are reaching an age where their beautiful formal lines are declining through tree loss. However, we rarely decide to clear and replant an entire avenue simply to retain the purity of the avenue, because to do so would entail the loss of the remaining old trees, with all their individual value and beauty. Pasture and Parkland If you've visited estates such as Croft Castle in Herefordshire, perhaps you've noticed single, beautiful trees surrounded by pasture with space to spread out their branches. Most of the nearly 40,000 ancient, veteran and notable trees on our land are in our wood pastures and landscape parks, as this is where they have had the space to grow and age. Wood pasture and parkland both consist of grazed land with trees, but the former generally combines woodland management with livestock grazing, and the latter has at least an element of design. Many of the Trust's 180 historic parklands have been influenced by well-known designers including William Kent, Charles Bridgman, Lancelot Capability Brown and Humphrey Repton, as well as individual creative landowners. Wood pasture and parkland are mosaic habitats, comprising grassland, heathland, scrub, woodland and individual trees, which are all valuable for wildlife. It's important to maintain the right level of grazing to keep areas open and prevent rank vegetation overwhelming less vigorous wildflowers and grasses. At Croft Castle, conservation teams are liberating ancient oak trees lost in conifer trees for over half a century. They are also bringing back to life the picturesque design of the Fishpool Valley by sensitive tree removal. Elsewhere, we're creating 92 hectares of wood pasture at Parkview Common, part of the Hardwick Estate in Derbyshire, on land previously used for mining and intensive farming. And now, joining me on the line is the National Trust's Head of Trees and Woodlands, Ray Hawes, to talk about his lifelong love of trees Ray, thanks for taking time out to talk to us today. I am always intrigued. You know, the variety of woodlands we care for in the National Trust can be tiny compartments. They can be huge, over a thousand acres. And they are vast on different soils, different altitude, different parts of the country. And it is a massive variety that have been under your umbrella for over 30 years. And, I, you know, I'm picturing at the moment you with your experience walking into a woodland for the first time. And you can read it like a book. When you go into a wood for the first time, it's trying to understand what it is, why it is there. Was it created for a particular purpose? Or was it, is it just happened naturally? And then when you realise what it is, you can then start to think about what it could be in the future. 
And there are amazing stories behind them, aren't there? And I think I think one of the greatest words associated with some of the woodlands in our care is the word ancient. You know, if I say ancient woodland to you, Ray, what does that mean? Well, I like to think of ancient woodlands as some of them might be a link right back to the last ice age when the wildwood was actually um, developed when the, uh, the land was recolonised after the, the glaciers disappeared and trees began to um, recolonise from the continent. Nowadays, the actual official way of looking at an ancient woodland is a wood that's been there at least since 1600, so at least 400 years old. So I said some of them are actually linked right back before that. And these tend to be the ones which are most uh, interesting from um, the wildlife point of view, because uh, a lot of wildlife that lives in woods, the fauna and the flora, take a long time to develop and they don't like disturbance. So if you have an area of woodland, which actually has been kept as woodland for a long time, then you get the very specific type of habitat and the things that live in it. And, I mean, a good example would be bluebells. Although bluebells, you can find them in more recent woodlands, you tend to find them in the ancient woodlands in abundance. I love the expression you used, wildwood. It truly defines what a woodland was and what it is and what it can become. You know, it's it's wild in in its boundaries. But the other thing we're trying to do, Ray, and certainly in some of our woodlands, you know, on these ancient sites, is to remove some of those exotic species, you know, some of the conifers, to take them out to allow our native species to enhance the landscape a little bit more. And you've been, you've been heavily involved in that, haven't you? Yeah. Well, this again goes back to what people want woodlands for. And there was at the beginning of the, um, the 20th century a desire to make our woodlands more productive and plant them up with um, conifer species, mainly from North America and other parts of Europe, because we needed the timber. But in fact, this has had a significant effect on the wildlife um, because the, the coniferous species, particularly evergreens, tend to shade out a lot of the... Um, what would be considered to be the native species in our woods. And so when we have them, and we find there are little, little pockets of the original vegetation, then by slowly removing the exotic or the introduced species, we can actually recover what is there. Um, and a good example would be a place called Wenlock Hedge in Shropshire, where we, we manage um, over 600 acres of woodland there, over eight miles. And over the last 30 years, we've removed over 15,000 tonnes of timber, and we haven't had to replant with any, any species of tree at all because all the local native tree and shrub species have naturally colonised the spaces we've created. So we've actually restored, to a large extent, the, the, the natural vegetation of these ancient, this ancient woodland on Wenlock Edge without um, having to plant anything. And there's a lovely term associated with that called natural regeneration, and I think that is, that is lovely. But on, on top of that, not just removing the exotic species, there's the invasive ones, like the rhododendron ponticum. And I know that we've used, all across the organisation, thousands of hours of volunteers' time in controlling that invasive species, haven't we? I would think in my time in the National Trust, we have probably spent more money on removing rhododendron from our woodlands than we have in actually planting trees. But, say, once it's gone, then the, the, um, the woodlands can recover themselves but there are other species, particularly like Himalayan balsam and Japanese knotweed, which are similarly invasive and are also causing problems because they do um, outcompete the native vegetation. And, I mean, they, that is a big, big challenge, isn't it, when you come across an invasive species that loves our climate so much it's just going to bully its way through a woodland or a garden. But other than that, Ray, what do you think the biggest challenges facing us and other custodians of our trees are today? As foresters... We tend to look ahead sort of you know, 50, 100, maybe even two, 300 years. And in the past, you know, we'd be fairly confident if we planted a tree like an oak, then it would be there for as long as we wanted it, certainly maybe up to 1,000 years. It's the unknown. There's a lot of predictions about how the climate is going to change in terms of its you know, weather patterns, 
you know, hotter, drier summers, wetter winters. So we can actually find species of trees which would actually cope with that. But it's actually the unknowns, it's the diseases and pests and things that we don't know about. So um, as a tree and woodland practitioner, then these are the questions I get asked out on, on all the sites I go to. What can we do now which is going to enable you know, us people, future generations, to enjoy trees and woods on this site? And, I mean, that's, it's so important, and our management of the woodlands is so important, but we also get benefits, you know, in a selfish way as humans. You know, they're so invaluable for well-being, aren't they? But there's this lovely expression called forest bathing at the moment. Do you, uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Absolutely. I've probably been doing it informally myself for many years. I do get a lot of peace and, and enjoyment just walking through woods. And this concept of forest bathing, which is enjoying mindful time in the woods to improve mental and physical health, was developed in Japan in the 1980s. And there's been all research about um, you know, the effects of um, trees and woodlands on people. And um, it, if you spend time in, in woods, it really does make you feel better. And apparently, some research has shown that even seeing trees out of hospital windows actually helps people to recover quicker from illness and operations. And it's, it goes hand in hand, doesn't it? Being outdoors, being in the woods, closer to nature, and just enjoying the wonders that are out there. Ray, thank you so much for talking to us today and thanks for taking the time out. That was Ray Hall's Head of Trees and Woodlands at the National Trust. If you want to contribute to this invaluable natural heritage, a donation of just £5 will enable us to plant one tree. For more information, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash woodlands dash appeal. And now, if walls could talk. Centuries from now, what might the colour of your living room walls say about you? In this feature, paintings conservation advisor Christine Sitwell explains how historic wall paint choices reflect the social status of their owners and the fashions of their time. It's read by Olivia Vinall. Wandering through the picture gallery and dining room of Attingham Park in Shropshire, I am struck by the boldness of the dark, deep, Pompeian reds of the wall surfaces, but in the boudoir and entrance hall, the atmosphere changes completely. Subtle pastel shades, beautiful and delicate figurative and ornamental painted panels, and the visual trickery of marble and trompe d'oeil decorations create a light and magical feel. The explosion and variety of colour not only delights my senses, but also piques my curiosity about Lord and Lady Berwick, who once owned Attingham Park. What impact did the prevailing fashion have on their decorative choices, and how was the variety of paint surfaces created? Past owners of country houses have had an enormous influence on historic interiors by indulging their passion for the latest fashion, creating their own eclectic style, or covering an existing scheme because it was either too garish or old-fashioned for their taste. Attingham Park was created in 1785, but by the early 19th century, the Regency style was in fashion. The first Lord and Lady Berwick adopted the fashionable French style of characterising spaces as either masculine or feminine. The house was divided into two symmetrical halves of matching suites, beginning at the entrance hall, with Lady Berwick's feminine wing to the east and Lord Berwick's masculine wing to the west. Attingham's octagon room is an example of a masculine space. It was originally Lord Berwick's study, but until recently its original colour scheme was covered by later layers of paint. 
In 2006, paint analysis and the careful removal of layers of overpaint by a conservator exposed a rich, warm black, overlaid with delicate streaks of vermilion red, creating the appearance of a fanciful, exotic timber. Based on this evidence, the black and red graining scheme has been recreated on the room's window frames, pilasters, rectangular columns, and bookcases. Additionally, we found archive documents from 1827 describing opulent, bold-coloured textiles in a Regency colour palette of shades of pink, crimson, scarlet and blue. In contrast, Lady Berwick's boudoir was pure femininity. Its owner chose pastel hues and delicately painted grotesque and arabesque motifs picked out with gilding for her most intimate room. It would have been the height of sophistication and feminine taste at the time. A series of roundels attributed to French artist Louis-André de la Brière adorns the domed ceiling and depicts scenes on the theme of love. Paint analysis showed that Lady Berwick's scheme survived intact, although disfigured by dust and dirt, and a careful cleaning of the decorative surfaces has returned the room to its charming appearance. These sorts of decorative devices were fashionable in part because of the popularity of the Grand Tour from the mid-17th to the late 18th century. As wealthy young men embarked on their traditional trips around Europe's great Renaissance cities and the remains of classical civilizations, they often gained an aesthetic education along the way. Their experiences frequently influenced the art and design of their own homes when they returned, so much so that the institution of the tour has been credited with an improvement in the quality of culture and architecture in the 17th and 18th centuries. It may be easy to look at paint as an expression of personal tastes and societal fashions. However, conservators, curators and historians see paint as much more than fashion. And here I am delighted to be joined by Christine Sitwell, who has worked for the Trust for 29 years. She is responsible for the care of paintings and painted surfaces in the Trust's historic interiors. Christine, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. Can you please explain what historic wall paint choices can possibly reveal about the past? Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, we have a wide variety of decorative interiors. And what they can tell us is they will reveal the social or economic status of the owner at a particular time. So, you know, were they knowledgeable about the fashionable trends? And then did they have the money to actually recreate these decorative schemes? And obviously all of that information you gather as you're doing the research into the different types of paints um, can help to guide your restoration plan for a particular room or for a particular property, I presume. It does. I mean, it's, it's, it's a joint effort because we have the curators, they're looking through all the archives, they're looking for documents, uh, diaries, letters where someone might say, oh, I visited such and such and I love the pea green wall color. Or they might be finding um, a, a bill or an invoice from a painter decorator. And that gives a clue. Um, and then we have the paint analyst who will take a tiny samples of paint and look at them under the microscope, and you'll see these wonderful layers of color. And the color can either reveal a wall color, or it might be an indication of a graining or marbling scheme, or some other decorative scheme. And sometimes there might be a pigment that 
pinpoints a particular period because pigments came in and out of fashion or they were only available at certain times. Interestingly enough, Christine, nowadays um, historic paint colours are kind of coming back and becoming fashionable again, aren't they? Well, they are indeed. I mean, you just have to look at any DIY shop or any specialist shop and you'll see, you know, traditional paints or historic paints. Um, But I find it interesting because we can't go back and make them in the traditional fashion. Um, that, That mechanism was a very slow process. But what we can do is try and recreate the look of that period. But recently, uh, the, the Little Green Paint Company, you know, we've been working with them to develop a range of colors that are inspired by all the wonderful colors we have on our properties. And recently, we've, we've come up with a range of greens, um, which they're inspired by places such as um, uh, Beatrix Potter's house up in the Lake District, where we found a wonderful green on a garden gate. Or if you go to Snows Hill, that terrifically crazy house in Gloucestershire where uh, Charles Wade uses a particular type of blue-green, not only in the house but also in the exterior. So we're, we're offering uh, our members and anyone else who's interested in paint a chance to see what type of colours have made the National Trust houses so interesting. It's fantastic. And I think you mentioned the Little Green um paint company and they they give a contribution from every sale to support our work don't they in conservation they do i mean it's it's wonderful because every time you buy something from little green a proportion of the of the price comes to the national trust christine thank you so much for talking to us today and taking the time out and actually opening um opening a wonderful chapter it's a pleasure and you can find out more at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash little green paint And that green has an E on the end of it. The workhouse in Nottinghamshire has a difficult history, but its new interpretation following a five-year conservation project shines a light on its human stories. The workhouse has a handsome red brick facade and glittering glass windows, but I feel... Self-conscious as I stand in the yard and admire its imposing, elegant architecture, as if eyes might be watching me. It's not a coincidence. I'm meant to feel scrutinised. The building's design was based on the idea of a panopticon, a prison where all cells are visible from a central point. The way I'm feeling is how the workhouse's Victorian inmates would have felt as they went about their daily lives, segregated and in silence, never knowing whether or not they were being watched. The workhouse was built in 1824 for those who were able-bodied but out of work. Its harsh conditions were meant to deter any who weren't truly destitute. By 1929, it had become more of a general care facility for the poor, elderly and homeless, and after the introduction of the modern welfare system in 1948, it continued to provide care for the elderly, children and homeless under national assistance until the mid-1980s. Today, it is one of the most complete remaining examples of a Victorian workhouse in the UK. This year sees the culmination of a five-year conservation project, reimagining the workhouse, to renovate the workhouse and its surrounding buildings and further explore their history for visitors. Central to the new approach are the experiences of past inhabitants, whose personal stories are highlighted 
rather than the system that shaped their lives. The project has been made possible thanks to funding from the Wellcome Trust. Visitors are encouraged to reflect on the history of welfare and explore the buildings freely, in stark contrast to the residents who were strictly segregated by gender, age and physical fitness. For the first time, you can visit the newly renovated Furbeck Infirmary, built 50 years after the workhouse and sited alongside it. The infirmary has new exhibition spaces for art projects and installations on the theme of welfare in the past, present and future. The team at the workhouse has reimagined two wards, one from 1871, when Furbeck first opened, and one dressed as it would have been in the 1970s, shortly before the infirmary closed its doors. There's also a new library, where visitors can access and search through a selection of records, journals, letters and books, and tips to help you explore your own genealogical connections. Assistant editor Rhea Borden met a research volunteer, a former resident and an artist at the workhouse. The words you'll hear next are their own. Catherine Onion has been a research volunteer at the workhouse for over 20 years. She works in social welfare and said, A big focus for the Reimagining the Workhouse project is to tell the stories of the people who lived and worked here. Many of the traditional ideas of workhouses are based on histrionic tales from literature, such as Charles Dickens's Oliver Twist. These are usually influenced by scandals rather than run-of-the-mill experiences, and the reality would have been much more mundane. One thing visitors forget is that when people came into a place like this, it was often from really terrible, desperate situations outside. They might have been evicted, or might not have eaten for days, so coming here wasn't always such a bad thing. The routine would have been boring and clinical, but you always find instances of kindness. Certain staff members would sneak children out to the cinema or long-term residents down to the pub for an evening out. You mustn't just focus on the horrors nor on the good things. It was like life, a mixture of the two. Opening the Furbeck Infirmary to visitors for the first time means we can share the later part of the workhouse's history. For me, this is particularly interesting because I work in social welfare and there have been so many important developments in welfare practice and legislation over the last century. By researching the history of the workhouse, I've been able to see how those changes actually play out on the ground today. Michael Parkins lived at the workhouse when he was five years old. He remembers... I was so young, just about five, when I lived at the workhouse, but I have a couple of very vivid memories. I remember spending a lot of time in a room which for me at that time seemed very large. I can remember standing on tiptoes in order to gaze through a window that overlooked a garden. I didn't have a bed. Instead, I slept on two chairs put together. I can't recall whether all of my family was there with me, but certainly I'm sure some of them must have been. I've been back to the workhouse to visit, and they've shown me the room where I lived. They identified it after I described the dark green and pale pink walls. They also showed me the stairs which led down to the kitchen, and it was amazing to be able to cement that memory in fact. I vividly remember the day I was at the farm playing in the hayloft. A lady came along and she shouted, Michael, Michael, you've got to come home. So I went home and 
there was this big black car waiting at the top of the road. My siblings and I were ushered into this car and we were taken away. I believe that was the start of us going into care. I've thought a lot about my experience since that time. For people who visit the place today, I think it's important to understand it as a part of social history, but also that it wasn't quite as bad as it was portrayed to be. It was tough in there, there's no doubt about that, but at least it put a roof over people's heads at a difficult time, and every person's experience will be different. It will have been a saviour for some and a nightmare for others. There is a part of me that knows it must have given my family a lifeline when my mother was in difficulty. Artist Morgan Tipping is the Workhouse 2019 Creative Fellow. She says, I challenge anyone to go to the workhouse and not to be profoundly moved. The building was made to be intentionally oppressive. The strict rules and routines that were in place shaped the lives of the people who lived there. Talking was not allowed, which meant no socialising. There was no singing, which meant no music. Even the physical space that people moved around in day to day was very limited. As the Workhouse 2019 Creative Fellow, I am co-creating the Factory Art School, a range of art projects made in collaboration with young people from community groups, Children's Homes, Cordwell House and Minster View in Southall, and Nottingham Mencap. One of the projects plays with sound and music, the young people at Minster View and Cordwell have a range of learning and mobility needs and experiences. For many, a wheelchair or walking frame is part of how they move, so I use those sounds as a catalyst to make music. It shows visitors what the physical experience of using a mobility aid is like. I don't think we've arrived at all the answers on how to make highly inclusive, creatively empowering collaborative institutions. We've inherited some positive routines, but also some problematic ones. This project is a playful and creative way of exploring those threads. A truly humbling place to reflect on stories of the past. From the future of the workhouse to the future of our rivers. A year after the Trust launched Riverlands, a project to restore some of our most precious rivers and their catchments. Author and chalkstream conservationist Simon Cooper reflects on their significance and why we should all care what their future holds. His words are read by Glenn McCready. Wallop Brook. Nobody really knows the origin of the name of the tiny chalk stream in Hampshire on which I live. Some say it was the name of the noble family who once owned the lands around these parts. Others say... Wallop is a lost Anglo-Saxon word meaning hidden valley. I err towards the latter explanation, not simply because it feels more romantic, but because it seems true. The unwary traveller will reach the top of the chalk down above us and suddenly come upon our village of Nether Wallop, which has grown and evolved over two millennia. Our homes are clustered along the Wallop Brook, few out of earshot of the burbling stream. The squat cottages are a reflection of the landscape we inhabit. The walls are made of pounded chalk, the roofs supported by willow spars cut from trees that grew in the meadows. The whole is kept dry by reed thatch harvested from the wetlands. Today, our village is archetypally chocolate box pretty, 
but the stream along which it huddles is under threat. People have used rivers since the dawn of humankind, first for simple things, such as water and irrigation, but over time humans have bent them to our will. Sections of the Magna Carta are dedicated to the nobles protecting their fishing interests from the king. Rivers drove the Industrial Revolution, powering water wheels and filling canals. We've used them to progress, but we've also abused them. It is easy to attribute blame, but rarely has the damage been willful, and it is no new thing. As early as 1885, Charles Dickens despaired at the end of salmon running up the Thames and the demise of lobster fishing within the sound of bow bells in London's East End. Climate change headlines focus on clean air for cities and ridding the oceans of plastic, both hugely important issues, but sometimes we need to lower our gaze to look to the landscape that immediately surrounds us. For, like the oceans and air, the rivers that supply our drinking water, that our children paddle in, and that offer all manner of idle pleasures, are much in need of our help. That is what the Riverlands Project, launched by the National Trust last year, seeks to do, bring life back to rivers and their catchments. Why do rivers deserve our care? Do they really need it? Sadly, the answer is a resounding yes. The facts are stark. Only 14% of England's rivers are in good health. The remainder are polluted to some degree by the triple prongs of commerce, agriculture and urbanisation. Just about every drop of water that falls from the sky is negatively impacted by human activity before it drains into our rivers. And that is very bad news for wildlife. Otters are a good case in point. The creatures were brought to the brink of extinction over the course of three decades between the 1950s and 1980s as their fertility was gradually diminished due to a particular pesticide. There was little evidence of the decline, no corpses littered the riverbanks, but the species was gradually dying out. Thanks to campaigners who fought for years against government indifference and vested interests, eventually the chemical was banned but it was another two decades before the otter population began to recover as the poison worked its way out of the food chain. From start to finish, that is 50 years. We can't wait that long. Species such as water voles and the birds, insects, fish and other wildlife that should thrive in and around rivers are as much in danger now as the otter was. For most of my adult life, I've worked on the chalk streams of southern England initially as a professional fly-fishing guide and part-time river-keeper, but latterly conserving these unique habitats that draw their crystal-clear water from the chalk hills. The need to protect and restore rivers and the valuable work that goes into doing so is a good example of why Riverlands is so important. I've experienced this firsthand through a problem our community had with cattle grazing in the Wallop Brook. Like people... Cattle love a river, but their heavy weight and sharp hooves erode the banks. Our stream, that should have been five metres wide and a metre deep, had been unwittingly widened over time to become three times its original width and one-third the depth, too shallow to hold any meaningful river life. The banks were grazed of any vegetation, destroying the home of water voles and their like. 
the once glistening brook had become a lifeless desert. So, members of our community came together, working as volunteers beneath the gaze of some disappointed cattle as we repaired the banks. We used the branches and trunks of fallen trees to create deflectors to confine and move the current, and shifted riverbed gravel to create small pools and whirling eddies. We planted rushes, sedge grasses, and native plants that thrive in the damp margins of the bankside, and then we walked away. For a whole year. Mother Nature is an amazing thing when you give her a helping hand. One year on, and our brook is transformed. It is sinuous and green. The tall growth along the banks is flecked yellow by flag irises, alive with bumblebees. From somewhere among the wet margins emanates a rat-a-tat-tat sound as water voles chew reed stalks. In the shaded eddies, shoals of tiny fish congregate, easy prey for the kingfisher that has found the perfect vantage point on a willow whip. On the half-sunk tree trunk are red-pink shards of a crayfish shell. An otter passed this way last night. For that is the thing about rivers and their landscapes. They are more than just water and fish. They are the corridors in which so much of our wildlife will thrive, given half a chance. The sight, sound, and beauty of a river are an everyday reminder of our connection to nature. They might not be high on everyone's agenda, but our rivers, great and small, will always deserve our care, conservation, and protection. Simon Cooper, showing how great change can come from the efforts of a few people. Simon mentioned the National Trust Riverlands project, which was launched last year. Here's Olivia Vinall to explain more. The Trust launched the Riverlands project in 2018, working with the Environment Agency and Natural Resources Wales to help restore some of our most precious rivers and their catchments to health. Only 14% of England's rivers are in good health. Riverlands aims to reverse this trend by slowing the flow of rivers to ease flooding, repairing riverbanks, helping wildlife in and alongside rivers, and tackling the rise of invasive non-native species. We'll work closely with local communities and provide opportunities to get involved in practical work, citizen science and arts projects. Changes are already underway. By the streams in Porlock Vale in Somerset, listen out for the distinctive plop of water voles ducking for cover. Water voles became locally extinct due to human activity, but we have released 300 there since last year. Meanwhile, near the River Conwy in North Wales, children have been finding out about Er Avanc, a mythical creature whose bad mood was thought to cause flooding. Working with a local theatre company, we offered workshops to community groups and schools, exploring how to keep Er Avanc happy. An important part of the work is helping people to access our rivers. At the Upper Bure, a chalk stream in Norfolk, we'll be creating 5.5 miles or 9 kilometres of new pathways so people can explore more of the area. Rivers don't recognise boundaries, and the success of Riverlands relies on everyone getting involved. Together, we hope that we can leave a legacy of healthy rivers for the next generation. These exciting changes are just the start. We need to raise £5.3 million to complete the first phase of Riverlands. If you'd like to donate or find out how to get more involved, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk 
forward slash mag forward slash riverlands. Assistant editor Helen Beer follows in the footsteps of the Anglo-Saxons at Sutton Hoo in Suffolk, 80 years after one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time. Olivia Vinol narrates this feature. Sutton Hoo. The very name conjures up visions of a pagan past where warrior kings ruled the land and fought for supremacy. It was here, in a quiet corner of Suffolk, that a series of mysterious earthen mounds yielded one of the most important archaeological discoveries in the world. A magnificent ship burial believed to be the Anglo-Saxon king Raidwald, buried in state with his hoard of treasures some 1,400 years ago. Since its discovery in 1939, the site has been a bucket list destination for anyone interested in history or archaeology. This year, following three years of work, Sutton Hoo is welcoming visitors to interactive exhibits, new walking routes through the landscape, and a 17-metre-tall observation tower from which to view the burial mounds. I meet archaeology and engagement manager Laura Howarth and visitor experience project manager Mike Hopwood in the centre of a renovated courtyard for a behind-the-scenes tour of the new facilities and the burial site. They're standing beside a huge steel sculpture of the ship burial, a full-size representation that at 27 metres long fills the space outside the new visitor hub. For Edith Pretty, the curious landowner who commissioned local archaeologist Basil Brown to investigate the strange mounds she could see from her windows, it must have been quite a surprise to unearth something as momentous as the ship burial. Visitors are invited to explore the extraordinary story as they wander round Edith's Edwardian home, Tranmer House, which overlooks the mounds. Mike says, We used to present Edith's house as a typical 1930s residence, but we felt we could find a better way to help people understand its remarkable history. In this very place, decisions about the dig were made, and fines from the burial were laid out on tables. All this was happening as the Second World War broke out, adding a sense of urgency. In Edith's wood-panelled dining room, vintage projectors were, displaying photos of the dig. Her drawing room holds a mixture of archive film footage, audio clippings, and contemporary newspaper articles tracing the history of the discovery. You can even stay here. Upstairs, Three newly refurbished holiday apartments await overnight guests who fancy immersing themselves further in Edith's world and enjoying views of Sutton Hoo from her own bedroom, now a guest lounge. Outside Tranmer House, we follow a new pathway downhill and across the landscape towards the Royal Burial Ground. The winding River Deben stretches ahead, the lifeblood of the ancient kingdom of East Anglia, and a reminder that Sutton Hoo is part of a bigger Anglo-Saxon history. Historians believe Rendlesham, less than ten miles up the river, was the site of the royal palace. It could have been from there that King Raidwald's ship made its final journey downriver to Sutton Hoo. Following the path uphill towards the royal burial ground, we're walking in the footsteps of the king's mourners. As we reach the top, the burial mounds come into sight. Seventeen of them, all different shapes and sizes. Most are little more than grassy hillocks, 
but one stands out from the crowd. Mound 2, reconstructed to what is thought to be its original height by archaeologist Martin Carver and his team in 1992. It offers a tantalising glimpse of how the burial mounds would have appeared before successive robberies and centuries of ploughing and subsidence took their toll. In fact, that Sutton Who survived at all is down to chance. All but two of the mounds excavated so far had previously been robbed. Mound One's precious ship burial would also have been lost but for a medieval farmer who dug an earthwork along the edge, leading Tudor grave robbers to miscalculate the middle of the ship. They missed the burial chamber by mere inches. By the autumn, visitors to Sutton Hoo will be able to enjoy a bird's-eye perspective of the landscape from a new viewing tower overlooking the mounds. Discreetly nestled into the edge of the woodland, the tower has three platforms at different heights, the tallest a head-spinning 17 metres. The lowest, at 3.5 metres, can be reached via a ramp. For the first time since the Trust took over the site in 1998, visitors can walk among and even over many of the mounds. At the top of Mound 1, markers where the stern and bow of the ship would have been give a sense of its scale the acidic soil long since having rotted away its timbers and the body that lay within. I wonder how archaeologists can be sure this was the grave of King Raidwald. Laura clarifies, We can never know for certain who was buried here, but King Raidwald is a likely candidate of someone who would have been warranted such a funeral at this time. Finds from the grave allude to its royal status. The famous helmet and a shield adorned with a hawk and dragon are likely to have been diplomatic gifts from Sweden, and garnets, used in some of the jewellery, may have come from as far away as Sri Lanka. The finds from Mound 1 were given by Edith Pretty to the British Museum shortly after the dig. Most of the ones you'll see here are master-crafted replicas, although several later finds from other burials are here on long-term loan. Mike explains, The British Museum got the bling, but we have the place and the people. We're working closely with them to build a fuller picture of Anglo-Saxon life for our visitors. Although little has been excavated since the 1990s, Sutton Hoo remains a live archaeological site. Laura says, Many people want to know when we're going to dig up another mound, but archaeological excavation is a destructive process. Once you dig, you can't go back. Instead, we're using new technology and non-invasive techniques to reveal what lies beneath our feet. That's not to say no new discoveries have been made. Recently, black lumps from the burial were re-examined by the British Museum and found to be bitumen from Syria. Laura says there's a widespread belief that the Anglo-Saxons were insular people. This discovery adds a whole new dimension to the trading networks they were part of and where they were travelling. We arrive back in the courtyard where we started. The Anglo-Saxon story continues in the exhibition hall behind us with new, interactive displays. The whole experience here is an intriguing and thoughtful mix of decades of research combined with creative interpretation. It makes Sutton Hoo a beguiling and totally unique place to visit. Laura thinks there's plenty left for archaeologists of the future to investigate. She says, there's still so much we don't know. 
some of which we'll never know for certain. What is clear, standing here 80 years after Edith Pretty and Basil Brown, is that 1939 was only the beginning of this discovery. The Sutton Hoo project has been supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, New Anglia Local Enterprise Partnerships Growing Places Fund and many kind donations from supporters. To plan your visit or donate towards the £100,000 Sutton Hoo still needs to raise, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Sutton Hoo. Now, an object I love has become a regular favourite in the magazine. In this autumn issue, I'm happy to welcome Mariah Jordan, who manages the Textile Conservation Studio. Mariah, thanks for coming in. Tell us about the object that you've chosen and why it's so special to you. I've chosen a fabulous uh, tapestry which comes from Hardwick Hall. And it's from a series of tapestries depicting um, the story of Gideon. And this is one of the biggest in our collection. It measures nine metres wide by six metres high. And that's a single piece tapestry? Yes, extraordinary. That's amazing. Now, you, you mentioned that is, uh, it depicts Gideon. What's, um, what's Gideon up to in this tapestry? So he is uh, choosing his army. God has asked him to go and attack the Midianites. And so he is, uh, he's called for men to come and help him to do that. Um, and he's overwhelmed. Lots of people have turned up. And he says to God, what am I going to do? I can't marshal all these people. And God suggests that they go and drink from some of the pools yeah. which are depicted at the front of the tapestry. Wow. And those who uh, drink with cupped hands are the ones he should choose. And the ones who sort of lap the water like a dog um, <laughs> should be left behind. They didn't keep this story simple, did they, on the tapestry? <laughs> But it's all there in this wonderful tapestry. So you can see them and it's very clear who's been chosen and who hasn't. And you, you have the privilege and pleasure, I suppose, of getting quite you know, up close and personal with this tapestry when you are working on it and looking after its future. But how on earth did you become so interested in textiles that you wanted to make this you know, your life, not just a career? Well, I I think from my earliest childhood, I'd been interested in stitching and making things and um, remember making uh, particularly um, um, a dressing table cover for my grandmother. And of course, she was she was very appreciative, which is always nice when you're a small child. Yeah. And, and I liked the work and I liked the creative aspect of it. Um, and so, and I think textiles have always been important to me because... And we moved when I was a child. My father was a diplomat, so we were always moving around. And, and textiles were very easy to take with us, um, even if everything else was coming in a ship later, <laughs> what I mean. And so I suppose textiles had, have always been very important to me. So um, I, I trained at the Courtauld Institute of Art before coming to lead the team for the National Trust, which is a wonderful job. That's, that is fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to take you back to this, these, this, these dimensions you gave me, nine metres wide by six metres high. Can you kind of tell us how you went about restoring this tapestry? Yes. 
um, in fact, the conservation had started by the time I arrived at the studio in 2016. Um, and I was interested to see that, um, very unlike other tapestries, it had been uh, woven in three pieces, three horizontal pieces. So wow. top border, the main field and the bottom border. Um, and so they were woven in those three pieces. So when we came to do the, um, the conservation, we deconstructed it into those three pieces too. So first of all, it was documented and photographed, and then it went uh, to be wet cleaned, to be washed. And that's really important because not only does it get out the dirt, the colours come back, and it rehydrates the fibres and gives back the suppleness. So that when we're doing the conservation work on the loom, then we can do our work so much more easily. Um, and then once we'd finished the loom work, we... Um, stitch the top border and the main field together and line that and we line the bottom border separately and then the whole thing went back to um to hardwick and we put the the top border and the, and the main field back up and then we uh, uh, actually stitched the lower border on when it was hanging it must be wonderful to to handle something that you're so kind of passionate about um from 1578 and you know the time you've given it investing in it during that restoration period, conservation period, will hopefully give it the same time again, would you think? Oh, yes. I mean, we definitely, we feel our work will be, uh, will last 100 years. So already this tapestry is uh, 400 plus years old. Um, and it has had conservation or restoration during its life already. And, you know, we always say in conservation that we're standing on the shoulders of others. An amazing legacy. And, you know, now that the restoration is done, uh, Mariah, you must, you must feel a little bit lost. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is always sad. I think the properties are always so delighted to have yeah. their objects back again. But we have a little tear in our eye as we set off home again and we say goodbye. You must be bursting with pride when it leaves. The yes. Work, the workshop. No, I think we always have a little celebration, you know, because it, it's such a great thing to finish a tapestry. Thank you so much, Mariah. It sounds like you're going to be kept very busy into the future as well. My pleasure. If you would like to find out more about Mariah's great work, she will be hosting a talk about the Gideon Tapestries at Hardwick Hall in Derbyshire on the 4th of November at 2pm. For full details and to book, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Hardwick forward slash watts dash on. Now it's time to hear from you. Joyce Burton in North Somerset wrote about her student days at Wentworth Castle Gardens. I was fascinated and delighted to read Andrew Morrison's article on Wentworth Castle Gardens in South Yorkshire in the summer 2019 issue. I am an old lady now, but from 1952 to 1954, I was a student at Wentworth, which was at that time a women-only teacher training college. I have many fond memories of the place. For the first year of training, I had the privilege of living in the mansion, and I recall the lovely painted ceiling in what was then our dining hall. The folly in the grounds, Stainborough Castle, was out of bounds to students, as was the avenue leading up to it, which was known as Lady Lucy's Walk. The folly was then in poor repair, 
and Lady Lucy's was considered unsafe due to mining subsidence. Of course, being students, we explored both areas. It was wonderful to be able to roam freely in the parkland, with its great trees and the rhododendrons, which were a spectacular feature. We were only permitted to be out of college until 10pm on weeknights, 10.30pm on Saturdays. How times have changed! I well remember on many occasions catching the last bus from Barnsley and running madly through the parkland to the main door, where the deputy principal would be waiting with her keys to lock the door on the dot of ten. Woe betide you if you missed the deadline. Your great pictures of the mansion and the folly were happy reminders to me of my time at Wentworth, and I thank you for them. Thank you also for your continuing work on preserving this special place and for fueling my memories. Ian Sandal in Hertfordshire reminisced about memory boxes. Foul weather this week changed a long-distance cycle ride to a trust exploration. My meanderings took me to Croom in Worcestershire. Oh, what a delight! I was moved by the installation of memories of former schoolboys, curated as part of the What is Home exhibition, on until July 2020. As a foster carer for many years, the significance of memory boxes and their eclectic contents was very powerful. Thank you for helping to raise awareness of the loss that so many children suffer silently, and thanks to them for sharing such important possessions. And finally, Carolyn Victor-Smith in London shares her experiences getting out and about with mobility scooters and trampers at National Trust sites. Further to your My Membership and Me article in the Summer magazine about the family managing chronic fatigue syndrome, I thought I would write to say that I also use mobility scooters and trampers at National Trust places, both near where I live in southwest London and on holiday. I have ankylosing spondylitis and cannot walk more than about 30 minutes before I have to sit down. I used to walk with the ramblers, so I miss being in the countryside very much. Mobility scooters and trampers at National Trust sites means I can enjoy outings and holidays with my family and friends once again, and most importantly, they help me to get out in the countryside. I am not a wheelchair user and do not own a scooter myself. Therefore, it is very important to me that places that I visit have scooters available. It is the number one factor that influences whether I visit a place or not. We love receiving your messages and we read every one please continue to stay in touch. You can write to us at The Editor, National Trust Magazine, Helis, Kemble Drive, Swindon, Wiltshire, SN22NA. Email magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. Facebook us at facebook.com forward slash National Trust or tweet using at National Trust. Now, before we wrap up this autumn issue, it's time to hear about some of the events going on at National Trust Properties this autumn. Joining me now in the studio is Sally Palmer, National Trust magazine editor, to take us through just a few of those events. Sally, autumn's an amazing time of the year and there are so many events going on at properties all over the country. How are we going to choose where to go? Alan, you're right. There's so much coming up to choose from and it is going to be hard. Why not make the most of those autumn colours and immerse yourself in the glorious landscape at Stowe in Buckinghamshire? 
as a programme of walks and workshops which will be taking place in collaboration with the poet and performer Dan Simpson. Oh, that sounds amazing and beautifully autumnal. So when is that taking place? The event is rather romantically called Under the Hawthorn and it will be taking place from the 16th of September to the 3rd of November from 10am to 5pm. Or how about celebrating the harvest by going along to an apple festival? You like apples? Oh, apple festivals are fantastic and they are fun. So where's that taking place? It's at Clannacaron in Ceredigion. It's on the 6th of October from 11am to 4pm. You can celebrate the harvest with guided tours of the orchards as well as food and craft stalls. You can even bring along your own apples for identification or for pressing into juice. You're a gardener, I expect you know all about apples. I wish I knew every single one of them, but I might bring a few along for identification. Autumn is also a great season for wildlife. Are there any events going on where we can explore nature and wildlife, Sally? Well, how about a deer safari? That sounds cool. I've never been on one. Where is that happening? It's happening at Crum in County Fermanagh on the 2nd of November with tours by our rangers at 10am, 11.30am, 1.30pm and 3pm. So you've got plenty to choose from. They're all on the same day there. That sounds fantastic. Now, on a different theme, I've heard rumours that there's dinosaurs in Staffordshire. Is that true? Yes, loads. Real ones. No, you must be talking about Dinovember at Bidolf Grange Garden. Dinovember? What's that? It's a celebration of the Victorian Garden's fossil collection, though I really wish they were real ones. The collection was amassed by its creator, James Bateman. On the 2nd of November, you can meet paleontologist Nigel Larkin. Or, on the 9th and 16th of November, you take an interactive journey to the Jurassic. Shows are every hour between 10am and 2pm. But they do say booking's advisable. You need to call 0344 249 1895. Another event for the kids, or the big kids at least, is being held at Montacute House in Somerset, which inspired Tottington Hall, the setting for the adventures of Wallace and Gromit in The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, remember that? You can come and see the model of Tottington Hall they used during the filming, and the model will be there until the 4th of November. It's amazing, isn't it, to hear of all the events happening across the Trust, and they are a celebration of the diversity on offer in the National Trust. But of course, November is a time when our American friends traditionally give thanks. And I understand we're being invited to join in the celebration, Sally. Yes, Alan, you can give thanks American style at Anglesey Abbey this November, from the 16th to the 28th. This is in honour of the American roots of its former owner, Lord Fairhaven. You can discover how this traditional American holiday was celebrated in the 1960s with special Thanksgiving food and festivities. Thank you, Sally. That should keep us all busy. And those are just a few things going on in trust places throughout the autumn. Well, that's all from us this autumn issue. I hope you've enjoyed it and do let us know what you think of this audio edition. You can email us at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk or you can call us on 01793 817400. The National Trust magazine Autumn 2019 was presented by me, Alan Power. The readers were Olivia Vinall and Glenn McCready. It was produced for the National Trust magazine by Sound Understanding and is distributed by RNIB. All items are copyright. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us for the next audio edition of National Trust magazine.